Man of Steel. Answers, Insight, Commentary. Episode 30, Tornado, Part 1. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Man of Steel, Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your Man of Steel apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by Man of Steel, like the infamous tornado scene. This episode, it's the conversation in the car, what safe means, and how the past primes the present. This podcast dives deep into Man of Steel to answer the critics and the confused. This show is not meant to convert anybody, meaning it's not my mission to convince you or to ignore the subjectivity of taste, but to celebrate a film that will lead us into the DC Cinematic Universe. Reasonable minds will differ, which means you may reach your own valid conclusions, especially on subjective matters like moral dilemmas, but this is a show intended for open-minded fans who love Man of Steel and who love to chew their food. We've finally come to the notorious tornado scene. It's a controversial and highly criticized scene. Apart from diegetic considerations as to whether the scene has internal logic and makes sense, there are creative criticisms about the intentions, themes, efficacy, and execution of the scene. With so much controversy over just three minutes of film, I'm not planning on tackling every conceivable criticism. Instead, we'll explore the underlying assumptions of the critics and the intentions of the scene. That said, I know that this is a tough scene, even for some of the most stalwart Man of Steel fans and DCCU optimists. Nonetheless, we can address some of the underlying assumptions relied upon by the critics and discuss the creative intentions of the filmmakers. I just briefly and temporarily expanded the intro to this episode because reasonable minds will differ, especially in the realm of moral dilemmas and subjective taste, and I'm not attempting to convince anybody that there is an objectively correct choice in a moral dilemma, any more than I intend to convince you that your taste is wrong or that mine is right. However, what I do like to do is to try to provide a little insight, commentary, and maybe some answers, which will fill out and explain the scene more so that we can understand the choices and the intentions without necessarily having to agree with them. If we keep an open mind, use our compassion and empathy, I think the scene isn't too hard to understand. Similar to working out all the nuances of Kryptonian powers, the scene actually works better if taken at face value, and the problems arise mostly from people introducing their own interpretations to the scene. Diegetically, just taken at face value, the scene is quite simple and it works. Clark expresses his frustration to his parents, but the conversation is interrupted by an emergency. Decisions are made under duress, and Jonathan doesn't want Clark to save him if it means that he must reveal himself to the world. Clark reluctantly honors Jonathan's request at the expense of his father, and whether Clark agrees or disagrees, revealing his secret has to be weighed against Jonathan's conviction and sacrifice, which gives Lois cause to axe the story for now. 
If that's what you get from this scene, that understanding is all you need for it to work in the film. It only gets problematic when you try to fight those basic precepts. When people start to challenge the decision-making is not carefully thought out, or they don't believe that Jonathan's fears have any justification, or they assume powers and abilities that Clark hasn't even demonstrated yet, the scene's logic suffers. But it's almost entirely based on unfounded assumptions, imported expectations, and unspoken presumptions not established in the film at this point. So to give you a roadmap of how we're going to tackle this, I think we're going to use a past, present, future framework. Starting with the past, we're going to break down the dialogue in the station wagon and see how it informs the situation and the choices. We'll look into the four years from the bus rescue to the tornado scene to find insight into their mindsets and lives up to that point. Then we'll analyze the present situation and really break down some of the facts and the assumptions people have about the situation. How do people make decisions during emergencies? Would a dog stay in the car? What's the rational decision in that situation even if you had all the time in the world to make a choice, was Jonathan suicidal? How is this scene different from the bus rescue in preserving Clark's secret? And we'll tackle those kinds of questions present in the scene. Finally, we'll look into the future and how this scene and situation informed Clark's life until he found Jorel. How did it affect his character and his approach to heroism from ages 17 to 33? With a diegetic interpretation of what's going on before, during, after, and around that scene within the film, then we can take a step back and look at the creative choices made outside the film. Why did the filmmakers put Clark into this situation in the first place? Why did Jonathan save a dog instead of a kid? Why did they make a seminal moment about Clark not saving somebody close to him? Something that's so hard and difficult to sympathize with when they're trying to make Clark relatable. Why did they insert a tragedy into a traditionally well-adjusted character? What were they trying to accomplish? And why is this scene arguably better than Jonathan dying of a heart attack. And what does Clark learn? I'm not sure how far into my notes we're going to get this week, but I think that's a reasonable plan and perhaps we'll do a mailbag or follow-up episode to tackle any remaining burning questions the listeners may have. But let's just get into it. While I don't think there's necessarily clear-cut answers to moral dilemmas, if we're to have any hope of evaluating the situation fairly and with justice, we need as much context as possible. If you don't have the full picture of the facts or understand the mindsets of the characters, it's going to be difficult to even attempt to fairly judge the predicament, what the choices are and the reasons behind those choices, whether you agree with them or not. If somebody cuts you off while you're driving or knocks you over, it's easy to feel justified in getting upset. But if you learn that the driver was rushing somebody to the hospital or that the person knocked you over to save your life, your attitude would change from anger to empathy or gratitude. So we need to get our facts straight and get the context of the scene. Who knows what, when, and part of that is parsing the past to understand what's been going on in their lives up to this point and how it informs this moment. The filmmakers understand that because the dialogue in the station wagon is a time machine that takes us back five generations through all of Clark's childhood and the past four years since the bus rescue. These seven exchanges are densely packed with meaning, intention, and purpose. I'm tired of safe. I just want to do something useful with my life. So farming, feeding people, that's not thats not useful. I didn't say that. Our family's been farming for five generations, Clark. Your family, not mine. I, I don't even know why I'm listening to you. You're not my dad. You're just some guy who found me in a field. Clark! That's all right, Martha. He's right, Clark has a point. We're not your parents. 
but we've been doing the best we can and we've been making this up as we go along so maybe maybe our best isn't good enough anymore look dad hold on there's a lot going on here but let's take it piece by piece i'm tired of safe Clark is clearly expressing frustration, which shows that he's in a negative mindset, but it shows that he can communicate and be honest with his parents, even at his worst. That's a weird way to look at a tantrum, but a lot of teenagers don't feel like it's safe to express negative emotions to their parents. It's not something that we should take for granted, the way that Clark is taking safety for granted. Clark is upset with an abundance of something that others dream of having. People who are impoverished, sick, hungry, abused, frightened, and insecure, who live in areas ravaged by disease, poverty, crime, and war, they long for safe. Safe is a very good thing. Safe means being healthy, having a roof over your head, warm clothes, and regular meals, and knowing it will all be there for you tomorrow. Even if the Kents got nothing else right, the Kents gave Clark a mostly peaceful childhood, a home, a family, a community, an education, a set of values, the knowledge that they were going to be there for him and would protect him, a sense of security, and as much of a normal life as such a special child could have. Under that lens, it's easy to turn on Clark and to consider him spoiled. But he isn't. He's just human. The broad concept of Maslow's hierarchy of needs applies. That's a psychological theory about the motivations that govern behavior under different environments and developmental stages. If one's physiological needs aren't being met, air, water, food, and protection from the elements, those needs will predominate and motivate over, say, artistic ambition. If your needs are relatively satisfied, safety then takes precedence and dominates behavior. The hierarchy continues with love and belonging, then esteem, self-actualization, and finally transcendence. Basically, the fact that the Kents were such good parents, able to provide safety, love, and belonging, meant that Clark had the luxury of an identity crisis, wanting a sense of contribution or value. And that's a completely normal part of teenage development. And exactly what Clark says, I just want to do something useful with my life. However, before we get there, I just want to highlight and heavily underline the point of what safe means. It's important to explore this because it addresses two criticisms surrounding the tornado scene. First, whether Jonathan could assume that Clark would be invulnerable in the face of a tornado. And second, whether Jonathan was justified in his fears if Clark's secret was to be exposed. Looking at the implications of safe will reveal the faulty assumptions on which these criticisms are based. Well, to be tired of it, to have your fill, means that's what he had. So if you want to know what Clark's life was like during the four years after he nearly blew his secret until he became a nearly full-grown man, all you have to do is ask yourself one question. Is that safe? In my mind, that means Clark basically didn't use his powers for the next four years. He didn't explore his limits, he didn't overtly explore his origins, and he was in a holding pattern for the next 1,500 days of his life as he went through puberty, finished high school, dated Lana, and grew up. Now at 17, he's on the verge of becoming an independent adult. Unfortunately, this is extremely counterintuitive to a lot of viewers who are used to a more reckless superhero narrative. They 
they expect Clark to show off, to have wacky Smallville adventures, to test his limits and learn that he's bulletproof, faster than a locomotive, and able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. But that's not the story that we're told, and it goes back to our one question. Is that safe? This theory and approach is supported in the film by the dialogue during the grade school scene where we hear whispers that Clark isn't allowed to play with others. When Clark is still learning to control his powers, even if normal kids get to play with one another, is that safe? This wasn't some arbitrary cruelty forced onto Clark. This was the rationale behind how the Kents would parent and protect Clark. This theory makes it unlikely that Clark knew or would meaningfully test his limits, and that's consistent with Clark not learning to fly until meeting Jor-El, and Jor-El having to encourage Cal into testing his limits. That would be an unnecessary exhortation if Clark had already been doing so throughout his life. People who make the assumption that Clark had a full understanding of his vulnerabilities when confronting the tornado are making a profoundly unrealistic assumption. The film goes out of its way to show that Clark doesn't know his vulnerabilities repeatedly. Clark had never been stung by a Kryptonian sentry robot before. Clark doesn't know what the Black Zero's atmosphere is doing to him. Clark had never fought a Kryptonian before. Clark had never been shot by an A-10 warthog or a Kryptonian dropship before. He had never been through a gas station blast. He doesn't know how much or whether the world engine will affect him. Clark had never struggled with Liquid Geo before and he had never faced a gravity beam before. Clark had never fought against the pull of a singularity before. In other words, it's empirically proven that Clark has been confronted by situations that reveal either his weaknesses or his limits, meaning that he didn't or couldn't have known them before this situation. In Batman v Superman, we know that there's at least one more similar factor that's going to be entered into the mix in the form of kryptonite. Now, since most of these are Kryptonian, the audience readily intuits the unknowable nature of the risk. Of course, Clark couldn't know about the Kryptonian atmosphere or the sentry robots, the dropship guns, and so on before he encountered them. And so the jeopardy of the unknown was very real. However, for whatever reason, they don't realize how alien, extreme, and unknowable it is to predict your invulnerability to military-grade weaponry or the forces of nature like a tornado. They completely sympathize and accept Clark crumbling under a Kryptonian atmosphere, but then turn around and condemn Clark for not assuming his invulnerability in the face of a tornado, packing the punch of 10 tons of TNT. There's just no reasonable, safe, or logical way to generalize barnyard experiments into the global assumption of absolute invulnerability on that scale. When your powers defy the known laws of physics to begin with, and you're starting with the resources, tools, and the education of a farmer. Jonathan feared the government and the military, and he wouldn't have the capability or the willingness to learn whether Clark was invulnerable to bullets, bombs, tanks, chemical weapons, and more. It's easy to have hindsight bias and assume that every experiment will work out because we know Clark's invulnerable. So of course, from our biased perspective, that's something that you would want to know, and the sooner the better. However, they don't know that Clark is bulletproof. And such experimentation runs afoul our baseline test. Is it safe? No, of course not. And so much more modest expectations of durability are completely reasonable. Think about it. In some traditional stories, Superman could just be harmed by a bursting artillery shell, well within military capability. Speaking of the Superman tradition, in Superman Confidential number 2, in the storyline Superman Kryptonite, 
by Darwin Cook, best known for the award-winning DC The New Frontier, he reminded readers that Superman doesn't and can't know all of his limits by relating a gripping story of a seasoned Superman tackling a volcano for the first time. I'll read some excerpts. I hit another vein of lava, and all hell broke loose. I'm scared now. It isn't the heat. I can't find a wall or surface. All I see is orange light. There is no air. I'm suffocating. I pull the flaming liquid down into my lungs. Madness and light. I'm drowning in a sea of fire. Later, Clark relates the trauma to his parents, and Martha comforts her son. Go ahead, dear. It's okay. I was trapped down there. I got scared. The more I fought, the more I panicked. I knew the lava wouldn't hurt my skin, but my lungs? I couldn't breathe. I was scared, and I thought, well, you know, this was it. I'd run out of air, and my body involuntarily tried to pull in oxygen, and I felt my head and my throat and my lungs fill with lava. I guess I just kind of lost it. I was out of my mind with fear. And then later, Jonathan says, To the newspapers and the TV, you're just the mighty Superman. Nothing can harm him. He bends steel with his bare hands. They play it like you're indestructible. But tonight, it hit me. How do we know? Your mother and I always just assumed that you can take anything that this world can dish out. But what if you can't? What if one day you find something that really can hurt you? Maybe even kill you? Based on the title of the story, Superman Kryptonite, it should come as no surprise what that thing is. But the story illustrates something so easy for audiences and critics to take for granted, even if it's unlikely that cautious and caring parents would make those assumptions in the real world. Of course, we're kind of skirting around the larger question of safe Safe from what? Well, honestly, we don't concretely know in fine detail. And the creative reason for this is because most of the fears would be speculative. And generally, people don't live their day-to-day -day lives speaking aloud their fears, which exist in the realm of speculation, to their children. However, we do know a lot in broad strokes. We know that both Jonathan and Martha were afraid of Clark being taken away. Jonathan expected the government to show up at their doorstep, and Martha expressly says she's afraid that Clark's people will take him away from her. It's a justifiable fear when the only basis for their adoption is their desire to have him. The government or the Kryptonians could arguably lay more justifiable claim on their adopted son. We know that Clark believes that Jonathan thought the world would reject him out of fear. And there's a certain amount of support for this throughout the film since Jonathan points out the fear of Pete's mom and Perry supports Lois in not going forward with the story. Zod debuts to the world in a manner that's like a horror film. And then Perry talks about the panic in response to Zod. However, Clark is far from infallible and actually misinterprets his parents' intention more than once, certainly in the argument in the station wagon, but also with Martha, believing that she was worried about his secret getting out before she corrects him. But that's another episode. The point is that Clark may not have completely understood Jonathan's intentions 100% correctly, and perhaps he put his own spin on it in the ensuing years. Again, that's another episode, but the point is that Clark's interpretation interpretation isn't the gospel truth. He's very much an unreliable narrator in that sense, which comes up later in this conversation. But I've completely gone off track. We were talking about the dangers that the Kents foresaw. Aside from their loss of Clark and being subject to persecution, Jonathan specifically cites how the world will be dramatically changed. And with it, he's suggesting significant upheaval. Personhood under the law might change. Religious tenets might be challenged. Scientific theories and understandings of the universe would be unraveled. On a much more practical 
practical level, clearly they were afraid of Clark exposing his secret or harming people with his powers, whether accidentally harming his teacher with heat vision or being a hair's breadth away from using his strength against some bullies. So much so that Clark wasn't allowed to play with anyone. And based on those broad fears and concerns, we can speculate on a few of their concerns. It's a bit esoteric, but concrete knowledge of viable life on other planets and FTL technology could hinder environmental preservation if humanity followed in Krypton's path of trying to spread out and consume rather than conserve and protect. The Kents wouldn't think of it in those explicit terms, but something along those broad ideas. Of course, we know the fear of emotional damage to Clark based on being rejected, hated, or feared. Earlier, we talked about the potential of physical damage. They wouldn't and couldn't have tested Clark's physical limits, so who knows what the government has in its arsenal which might harm their son or which they might concoct. Batman v Superman puts that fear into stark relief. It shows weapons can be developed against their son. Further rumors about Batman v Superman put another fear into focus, that the use of themselves and any other emotional attachments Clark might have may be used against him if his parents or others are held as hostages. Even if Clark is impervious to conventional weaponry, he could be bent to the will of others through the Kents or others. Again, it wouldn't exactly be realistic or make sense anywhere in the film for the characters to start listing off these speculative fears in such a concrete nature, because they're not concrete. They don't know whether any of these things can, will, or might happen. It's just so speculative that the vague terms that Jonathan uses make sense, because to enumerate these kinds of fears would just make you look unduly paranoid or even cruel. Son, every time you use your heat vision, you might be giving off a signal that the government can track. Son, twisted individuals may use your love for us to weaponize you under duress. Son, your people might return one day and take you from us, and they may judge humanity based on how you were treated. Parents generally don't list their worst fears about what might happen to their children to their children. The filmmakers reasonably stepped around making such explicit declarations, which are awkward and unrealistic and sound crazy without a clear and present danger. Yet nonetheless, they're the kinds of very practical and possible fears that they easily could have had, the things that they meant to keep Clark safe from. <laughs> Yikes, we haven't gotten past the first four words. Let me pick up the pace. So Clark says that he wants to do something useful with his life, which is admirable and what is normally expected of young people transitioning into adults. Clark's frustration is understandable because he's obeyed his parents all this time. Clark cooperated with being safe. He wouldn't be tired of safe if he wasn't safe. He wasn't out there having wacky Smallville adventures. And yet he's no closer to his answers and the promises Jonathan made in the bar. He's a lot like teenagers who know they're dissatisfied, but they don't know how or what will answer that lack of purpose or calling. The job superhero doesn't publicly exist in this universe, and without flight, response time is an issue. So nearly any job which might use his physical gifts also comes with physical examination and testing or a high risk of blowing his secret in the field. The line follows the frustration with safety because implicit in doing something quote-unquote useful means that he's doing something less safe. In other words, Clark wants to do something which might put his secret at jeopardy and use his abilities, which is what everyone wants. It's how we're built, and that's a sympathetic impulse. Everyone wants to find fulfillment using their gifts and their abilities to their utmost. It's what Jonathan wants too, and perhaps why he takes umbrage at Clark's unspoken implication. So farming, feeding people, that's not useful? I didn't say that. 
Now here we see that Jonathan and Clark agree upon the meaning of useful. They're talking about the greater good, helping people, not just personal fulfillment. And this tells us what Clark's assumed occupation would be up to this point. Clark was learning and expected to become a farmer. And that's clearly the safe choice. Taking on the family business means no paperwork, testing, or curveballs. If Clark was content to work on the farm, his secret would probably be safe for the rest of his life. Since this was Clark's default destiny, Clark's statement implies that farming isn't useful. And that's Jonathan's calling, and he gets defensive about it. Note too that Jonathan is doing what he always does. He's looking at the bigger picture and the implications, which is how he chooses to infer Clark's unspoken meaning. It's a logical conclusion, but a misunderstanding since Clark wasn't thinking about that. He clearly doesn't say that and likely doesn't mean that. Instead, he means that he wants to do something that usefully uses his unique abilities. Nearly every occupation is useful, but not every job is meaningful to everyone. Jonathan derives satisfaction and pride from his profession. He says, our family's been farming for five generations. Now think about that. Jonathan's saying that for over 100 years, their family has been in the same occupation. That's a legacy of constancy and stability, of conservative safety. If you consider the changes in society, transformation in technology, the rise and fall of governments, revolutionary discoveries, and so on, which might have happened over the course of the last five generations, there's a certain level of timelessness to farming for all that time. There's also an incredible amount of inertia to overcome. If you think about things that have lasted 100 to 150 years, most of them aren't going to change overnight. And perhaps that's what gives Jonathan the ability to see things from a larger perspective and to look at the long view and not just the here and the now, not just our lives, Clark, or the lives of those around us to look at the really big picture, the things that really change history. On the other hand, it's a miracle that Jonathan has that perspective because it would be really easy to just focus on his plot of land for the next five generations. Clark is declaring his intentions to break that chain, which initially upsets Jonathan. But if we think back to the barn, it's not like Jonathan didn't know that this was coming. Even back then, Jonathan knew that Clark was going to stand before the entire human race to challenge and change their beliefs and the nature of humanity. Even back then, Jonathan knew that Clark wasn't going to be just a farmer. He was meant for something else. Instead, Jonathan had mostly been biding his time, running out the clock, and waiting for something to change, for something to happen. But more on that in a bit. Note that Jonathan includes Clark within this line without a second thought. Our family, including Clark. And Clark throws that right back into Jonathan's face. Your family, not mine. I don't even know why I'm listening to you. You're not my dad. You're just some guy that found me in the field. Ugh. This is brutal and probably one of the most hurtful things a child can say to their adoptive parent. Certainly Clark is frustrated, but this is over the line and Martha calls Clark out on it immediately, saying his name in a shocked and scolding tone. Just as a quick aside, this suggests that Martha is the disciplinarian and that gets supported by the deleted scene where Jonathan takes Clark fishing without telling her. So hopefully we'll get more scenes of Martha being strong and tough in Batman v Superman. This shows that they discipline with words words and deeds, and that works with Clark. You can tell that Clark regrets what he says as he swallows hard, and he takes it back soon after. The very next line is, look, dad, meaning that he does acknowledge that Jonathan is his father. Within the framework of this flashback, Clark has just met Jor-El, and in describing this story to Lois, he says twice, my father, both times referring to Jonathan. Clark's last line in the flashback is the anguished cry, dad. Jonathan is Clark's 
father. There's no question about it. Yet, frustrated and confused teens, they say these kind of things. Writer David Goyer indicated that this scene was informed by his own experiences with his stepson. I think I'm most proud of the, probably the scenes between Clark and Jonathan Kent. Those are the ones that really touched me. Those are the ones that I related to a lot because I'm also a stepfather. Yeah. And a lot of those scenes were informed by conversations that I had you know, with my stepson. So these lines show that teenaged Clark isn't ready. If frustration causes him to lash out and say things that could hurt the people that he loves most in the world, what would true anger, hatred, or rage mean for the world? As much as Jonathan is afraid that Clark will be taken away by his calling, his people, or the people of this world, he's also afraid that Clark can be hurt, not just physically, but emotionally. He's afraid that the world isn't ready, and here, Clark shows that he isn't ready. He knows knows that Clark doesn't mean it, and he's already forgiven Clark in an instant. But even if this is how any teenager might act, he also knows that Clark is going to be on the world stage, where he's not going to have the luxury of forgiveness or grace for outbursts like these. What's remarkable is that Jonathan has this insight, compassion, and love, and gives an amazing response. It's all right, Martha. He's right. Clark has a point. We're not your parents, but we've been doing the best that we can. And we've been making this up as we go along. So maybe, maybe our best isn't good enough anymore. I don't know about you, but how often do people turn the other cheek when you just tried your hardest to hurt them? You want to know in practical terms where Clark learned to forgive? To give people like Pete Ross or Colonel Hardy a chance to come around? Right here, with the example his father sets. Clark has slighted Jonathan's generational profession and legacy. He seems ungrateful for the safety and the security provided by Jonathan and Martha. He then goes on to say the most hurtful thing that attacks the heart of their adoptive relationship. And and yet, instead of escalating any further, getting into a shouting match, or getting angry, hurt, and frustrated in return, Jonathan recognizes how much Clark is hurt and frustrated, and he immediately diffuses the situation. In circumstances where many of us might just blow up or turn inward and lick our wounds justifiably, Jonathan remarkably forgives Clark and focuses on his needs and issues in this charged moment. Jonathan acknowledges Clark's point, showing that Clark's been heard and understood, he's being listened to. And then he acknowledges that their approach was improvised and perhaps lacking. Jonathan is conceding that Clark may need more, with the implication that they'll help him get it. To me, if there's no tornado, they drive home together and they start to plan out Clark's future and how he might use his abilities for the world. That's a tough question with no easy answers, but I think they commit to some sort of exploration. Without the tornado, I think they arrive at an understanding that's essentially some variation of Birthright or Superboy. This allows Clark to spread his metaphorical wings, remember he still can't fly, beyond Smallville and actively start using his powers for good under the guidance of Jonathan and Martha. I think before this moment, Jonathan felt like he was running out the clock. Clark is 17, about to turn into a legal adult, so the clock has run out on its own. If they didn't compromise on this point, Clark might go and be reckless on his own. That's not what Clark wanted, to go without their blessing, but he couldn't stay trapped with 
safe. Why didn't Jonathan and Martha explore this earlier? Because it wasn't safe. I think Jonathan was waiting for something to happen, something that would give them clarity. He would have been versed in the stories of Moses and Jesus, and perhaps he was waiting for something like Clark's burning bush moment. Jonathan was literally expecting Clark to find his biological parents someday, and he just wanted to keep Clark safe until Jorel would find Clark and answer all the questions that Jonathan couldn't. Surely the alien with the power to send his son across the stars could protect and provide for Clark in a way that would keep him safe from the world. At the same time, Jonathan was preparing Clark to think for himself and to make hard choices. It would have been easy to always tell Clark what to do because Clark would have done it. The problem with that approach is that Jonathan wouldn't always be there to tell Clark what to do. Jonathan was helping Clark to be a decision maker. All parents do that. The difference is that Martha and Jonathan practically had no margin for error. Few children can impact the entire world, all of humanity, with their choices overnight. Whether it's to save a few people, or in a moment of vanity or rebellion, choosing to declare himself to the world, Clark revealing his secret would be an irreversible error of planetary magnitude. Most parents and children are allowed the luxury of many mistakes, but not here. And Jonathan understood that almost immediately. Contrary to my theory, if Jonathan and Martha did have a grasp of what Clark's powers were or could be, there would be an extra layer of importance on decision-making with their parenting. Unlike other parents, even if they're not there to instruct or discipline their children, ultimately society will and must. That is, normal people can be controlled by law enforcement, government, and societal structures. If a normal person breaks the social contract and tries to rob a bank or wreak havoc, generally the rest of humanity is able to stop them. However, who can stop Clark if he doesn't want to be stopped, if he doesn't have his parents to tell him what to do, and if there are no fetters on his decision-making? Jonathan might have seen lawlessness in Vietnam, whether serving or in how the war was being reported. They needed to raise Clark to make the right decisions, even if no law, cage, or court could bind him. And they did, through the Socratic method, through lots of talks and time, through illustrations and examples. Clark's extraordinary senses means that he could be alerted to and consider the needs of people well beyond the scope of what normal people would include in their calculus. But Jonathan encouraged him to think even bigger than that, even beyond the lives of those around us. If our sense of right and wrong comes from like these competing brain systems, let me revisit the question, are our brains built to favor certain outcomes? Let's suppose that you are walking alongside a lake and you see a, a, a girl drowning right in front of you and she's screaming for help, but you're wearing a very expensive suit. Mm. Should you jump into the lake and save her? No. <laughs> no, of course, of course you should, yes. <laughs> you mean like the suit is the only thing that's, that right. would prevent so me from doing that? Yeah. Yeah, 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 jump in. But now suppose you're walking down past your mailbox and there's a letter in the mailbox which says, please give us $1,000 so we can help save girls on the other side of the globe. Girls you'll never meet, girls whose screams you'll never hear, but there are girls in trouble on the other side of the world. Go help them. And so wait, so the, the equivalence is that you jump into the lake, you save the girl who's drowning. One-on-one. -on -one. Or yeah. you send the check and you save the girl who is sort of, uh, in peril in, in some peril, way. Yeah, a girl, not a that girl. girl, a girl, a girl, somewhere on the other side of the globe. I see. So the question, in, uh, the, the go to Josh, is if you didn't give the $1,000, would that make you a bad guy? Right. Well, there is something funny about these cases, right, that, that most of us say that, of course, you have to, to, to rescue the drowning child, but 
you know, it's you're not a saint if you don't give your money over to, to, to save the children on the other side of the world, but you're certainly not a terrible person or so it seems to us. And it makes sense that we would have moral buttons, so to speak, that get pushed by the kinds of things that our ancestors might have encountered. Whereas the idea of spending a minimal amount of money to save the life of some stranger on the other side of the world that you're never going to meet, that's a totally new modern phenomenon. It's not something that our emotions are prepared for. Well, now, doesn't that leave us in a funny place? Because I think, I think it does. What happens if the most important questions that we face as a species or as a group involve thinking abstractly? Yep. Those problems, pollution, global warming, and things like that, those aren't really local problems. They're global problems. Exactly. This is, I think, gets right at the heart of the matter. And this is why I do this research. I think that the kind of thinking that we apply to those problems, what we call common sense, is really hunter-gatherer common sense, or at least a lot of it is. And if we're going to face these big problems that we're, our minds were not designed by evolution to handle, then we have to learn to turn off parts of our brain that are getting in the way and turn on other parts that may seem like the wrong parts to be using. So he's saying that we should tamp down our primitive emotional instincts that are in our reptile brain, and then we should we should amp up somehow the uh, the part of us that thinks more abstractly about the greater good and about people that aren't that, right in front of us. Yes. Well, I hope so. I mean, the problem is that as a species, we tend to learn from trial and error. The problem with issues like nuclear proliferation and global warming is that we only have one Earth. And you know what I hope is that if we have to learn the lesson from some kind of trial and error, the errors are not so big that we don't get another chance. Jonathan prepared Clark to approach the world abstractly using principles rather than give in to just his senses. But back to the station wagon, Clark says, look, Dad, before they're interrupted by the storm, Clark acknowledges Jonathan is his father. Clark has forgiven Jonathan for his improvised parenting, and he's sheepish about his outburst, and he wants to continue the dialogue. Okay, so let's set the stage for the decision-making that's going to happen over these next two life-changing minutes in their lives. Next episode, we'll talk more about how people make decisions under emergency circumstances and the difficulty of deciding a moral dilemma, but I think it should be no surprise that it's difficult. Under those circumstances and pressures, people don't always make the best decisions. Instead, they tend to be guided by their experience, their past, their training, and their gut. And when they're guided by their gut, we tend to mean their subconscious. Stimuli in their recent past or immediate situation triggers activation of their semantic network, heightening related concepts, feelings, thoughts, and inclinations, which in turn influence their behavior and their decision-making. We call this priming. A simple way to look at it is that our minds, our memory, and our experiences are a network of linked ideas. And pulling on one idea will recall a linked one, and together they may influence behavior. This is a well-trod area of research and study, but let me share some of the interesting experiments, which all have a control group and then a group that's unknowingly primed with stimuli to see how it affected them. For example, individuals would be told that they're doing a word search test, but the word bank would be filled with words associated with the elderly. Individuals who were so primed would walk measurably slower out of the room than when they entered. In another test, subjects were told to get their answers 
assigned by a professor at the end of the hall to turn it in. The professor would be engaged in a conversation with an actor when they got there, and the researchers would see how long it would take for the subjects to interrupt in order to submit their paper. If the subjects were primed with words associated with patience, the subjects wouldn't interrupt at all, and they would wait until the time ran out on the experiment. Conversely, in a similar study, if the subjects were bumped in the hall without an apology, then they would interrupt without hesitation. Intelligence, creativity, and performance can all be primed. When asked to recall a list of items from memory, subjects listed more items if they were told to think about professors and scientists first. When asked to come up with creative uses for a brick, subjects performed better if they were primed with the logo for Apple versus the logo for IBM. And several experiments show test-taking performance can be affected simply in how it's presented to the test taker, sometimes in ways that frighteningly fall along racial or cultural lines. Holding money, the color of walls, holding a hot or cold cup of coffee, and more can all tap into our subconscious and produce measurable influence on our behavior. I'll put some links in the show notes. So how does this apply to Jonathan and Clark during the tornado scene? Well, consider their history, their training, their patterns, and then think about what stimuli existed in the station wagon which might impact or affect their decisions. This is why we explored the larger context and the history to see what decisions they were primed to make. First, let's consider what their default training has been for the past 1,500 days. And aside from a few blips here and there, the 13 years prior to that, it was secrecy, right? Clark was always advised to try and keep his powers a secret. And we've just been told that they've been reliably doing that for the past four years with intensity. And that also means that the default is also obedience. Clark followed that plan and those instructions. Despite this blow-up outburst and tantrum, Clark is expressing frustration with the fact that he has been rigidly obedient for the last quarter of his entire life, and mostly obedient for the rest of his life. The default, the history, the value that they had drilled into him for 17 years straight is to maintain his secret as a priority, but reinforced especially these past four years because of the bus incident. That is a lot of inertia and history to overcome in a split second. Is it necessarily surprising that when pushed into a decision-making crisis, Clark defaults to how he had been trained to think for the past four years? Well, maybe. We'll explore that more later, but let's consider some other stimuli. Clark did overcome his training to rebel a little and express his frustration. But how did that feel? It felt awful. Clark broke from his four years of obedience, did something different, but it hurt his parents and flooded him with regret and remorse. He demonstrated disobedience, anger, distrust, and it all felt wrong. So in these next few moments, Clark would be primed to not repeat that feeling. He defers to dad, showing that he can be obedient, patient, listen, and that he loves and trusts his dad as his real parent. Meanwhile, for Jonathan, there's a complex stew of emotions, thoughts, and concepts bubbling up. The most elemental one, the one that we've been harping on all episode, the one that was Jonathan's obsession throughout Clark's life, is of course Clark's safety. More than anything else, if there's a single value or concept Jonathan has in relation to Clark, was keeping him safe for the past 17 years. So unsurprisingly, nearly every decision Jonathan makes in the next two minutes can be seen as prioritizing Clark's safety. There are also some other potential stimuli. Clark's tantrum showed that he was not ready 
and immature. He was acting like a child. And this would trigger Jonathan's paternalism and protectiveness and his role as parent and father over this child. And we can see how this would influence Jonathan to give orders to Clark and again, instinctively prioritize Clark's safety. Clark's tantrum also showed that Clark was hurting. And if anything is hurting a loving parent's child, that would easily trigger paternalism, protectiveness, and Clark's needs and safety in Jonathan. Clark also challenged Jonathan's fatherhood, which may have primed Jonathan to prove that Clark is his son and that he loves him. But more likely, based on their conversation, it causes Jonathan to reflect upon and admit his feelings of inadequacy about his parenting. Making it up as you go along isn't good enough anymore. Clark is about to become his own man. He doesn't know why he's listening to Jonathan. Jonathan isn't his real dad. Jonathan's parenting was improvised and wasn't enough for this special person. So subconsciously, Jonathan may have felt that his usefulness to Clark was at an end, that Clark was moving on from them, and that there was nothing more that he could do for his hurting son. So fighting that sense of uselessness, Jonathan makes decisions to be as useful and as helpful in the situation as possible. He tries to show how much he loves his son and tries to protect his son as best he can. Clark's immaturity shows that Clark isn't ready to be exposed, so he needs to be protected. But Jonathan's subconscious may feel that his role as parent wasn't good enough. And if he feels that his time is done and that he has nothing left for this boy about to become a man, except this one last sacrifice. In the uncertainty of the entire situation, Jonathan defaults to what they've always done and done with conviction. Keep Clark safe. And he's at peace with that because it says all that he wants to say to Clark. And the fact that Clark doesn't rush out to save Jonathan in derogation of his secret tells Jonathan that Clark's going to be okay. Lest this all seem too speculative in interpretation, note that Mark Wade, the writer of Kingdom Come and Superman Birthright, essentially came to this same idea on his own. While Wade doesn't use the explicit psychological term of priming, he intuitively arrived at that same explanation for why he personally appreciated the tornado scene so much. In his review of Man of Steel, Wade said, and I think you'll be surprised to find that I loved everything about Jonathan Kent. I loved his protectiveness, even when it made him sound like an asshole. Maybe. And I loved, loved, loved that scene where Clark didn't save him because Goyer did something magical. He took two moments that individually I would have hated and he welded them together into something amazing. Out of context, I would have hated that Clark said, you're not my real dad or whatever he says right before the tornado. Out of context, I would have loathed that Clark stood by frozen with helplessness as the tornado killed Jonathan. But the reason that beat worked so well is because Clark had just said, you're not my dad. The last real words he said to Pa. Tearful, Clark choosing to go against his every instinct in that last second because he had to show his father that he trusted him after all. Because he had to show Pa that Pa could trust him and that he had learned. Clark did love him and that worked for me hugely. It was a brave choice. It worked. It worked largely on the shoulders of Cavill who sold it. It worked as a tragic rite of passage and I kind of wish I had written that scene. By the way, I've met Mark Wade and he doesn't sound anything like that. I just needed something to distinguish his voice. Um, so Wade ties the choices that Clark makes to the dialogue and the emotions in the station wagon and shows why they're closely linked. It's no secret that overall Wade didn't like Man of Steel, but you can see that he admired that scene. Many diehard Superman fans who are no less passionate than Wade have no trouble with the amount of destruction, but they can't get past the tornado scene. So it's another example that reasonable minds can differ. 
I'm not necessarily attempting to reconcile those differences, but at least to present the perspectives of those who took something positive away from those scenes so that their point of view can be understood, even if you don't accept it. When we cover the creative intentions, we'll go into the possibility that this scene was intentionally created to be ambivalent and ambiguous rather than being clear cut, but that's another show. So what did we learn in this episode? We learned that the Kents were good parents and they provided enough safety and security that Clark could have the luxury of an identity crisis. We learned how being safe meant that Clark didn't use his powers or explore his limits since the bus rescue. We showed how it would be impossible for Clark or Jonathan to know that Clark was safe against military weapons or against the might of a tornado, and how that's consistent with the film and Superman tradition. And that means that criticisms relying on the assumption that they knew that Clark would be safe are probably faulty. We talked about what the Kents were keeping Clark safe from, what their fears were, and why the film didn't expressly state them. Basically, because the scope of fears were too many, too terrible, and too speculative to explicitly state, but nonetheless real possibilities that might have concerned them. We learned that Clark was on track to take over the farm and why that was the plan, but we also looked at why Clark was so frustrated, why he was so hurtful, and then we looked at Jonathan's remarkable response. We speculated where things would have went without a tornado, and then we learned about priming and then reviewed the scene for how it would prime the decisions that followed. Finally, we wrapped with a writer who disliked Man of Steel but loved how the tornado scene worked. Okay, I think I've rambled on long enough. Here are some shows I suggest you check out if you want to extend your enjoyment of the Superman mythos. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. The Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring Superman and Batman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast. The DC Comics Presents Show. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. It's Superman. The Schuster Herald Podcast. The Carousel Podcast. Superman Forever Radio. Superman Lives. Up, up, and away. Cadmus to Crisis, a Superboy podcast. The Amateur Steel, a John Henry Allen podcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts. Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, Russell Bragg, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Saab, Bob Fisher, Chris Moe, Mario Benessi, Drew Wintermeyer, David Byer, Matthew Epps, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co-host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Thanks so much for listening. I just love discussing this stuff, and if you've been sticking with me, hopefully you do too. I'm genuinely grateful for each and every listener, and hope you'll join us at manofsteelanswers.com. That way, if you've got questions you want answered, or insights that you want to share, or commentary to make, you can post in the comments for all your like-minded apologists to see. Or you can email me at mosaic at manofsteelanswers.com. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes or Stitcher, and subscribe. This is Dr. Awkward, your DC Cinematic Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time.
answer, son. Making decisions, even simple ones, is a tricky process. And you're very, very bad at it. We're all faced with thousands of decisions every day. And according to science, the choices we make are often bad ones. Most of the time we're behaving online, we're behaving in the flow of the moment, we're faced with this uncertain world, and we're doing the best we can. And often we're wrong. Our grip on reality is not always as tight as we'd like to think. We think we have a, a stronger awareness of our surroundings and our choices and the reasons for our actions than we actually have. In 1996, Professor John Bard shocked and outraged his fellow psychologists by publishing studies which controversially showed that our decisions can be subliminally manipulated. I had fruit thrown at me at these talks when I give these results early in the 90s, and they were joking, you know, but I had apples and oranges lobbed at me because they thought, you're going too far. I've ceased being surprised uh, at the results of these studies, uh, but only because of all the long experience that these things keep working. The subliminal effect that rattled so many cages is called priming. If you're watching uh, television or watching a movie or reading a book and what's happening in the movie or TV uh, could be something, uh, someone doing something very brave. And that just by itself activates ideas in the concept of bravery. And you might be more likely to see another person as a brave person or another person as a kind person or an intelligent person more than usual and more than you would have had the prior event not happened. And that's the nature of priming. Images and even words slipping thoughts and feelings into our subconscious is one thing. But what is more worrying is how those thoughts and feelings can then change our behavior. Today, one of John Barger's PhD students is running an experiment to investigate the priming effects of temperature. What we do in our experiment, we very briefly expose people to a warm or cold substance. And what we expect to happen is that that simple experience with a warm substance or a cold substance will prime people to sort of activate these uh, feelings of warmth and comfort and the things that we've learned about since we were very young. And when we have those things in mind, those things we know will color people's judgments and decisions and their behaviors as well. Volunteers for the experiment are asked to hold a warm cup of coffee as they are met by Lawrence. They have been primed with heat. The purpose of the experiment is to record participants' judgments about Lawrence's colleague, Randy. The theory is that the hot drink will somehow elicit positive feelings towards Randy, even several minutes after experiencing the warmth of the cup. And here's the killer question. Would you give Randy a permanent job? Based on your brief interaction with Randy, or would you hire him um, as project manager? Uh, he seemed like a, a generally friendly guy. So yeah, I would say so. Yeah, why not? <laughs> sure, yes. yes. Saying warm and friendly things about a stranger might just be the normal polite response. Time to cool things down. Except for the temperature of the drink, identical conditions, the same conversation with Randy, and six minutes later, the same questions from Lawrence. Based on your brief interaction with him, would you recommend him or would you hire Randy as project manager? Uh, as a leader? I'm not sure. 
based on the brief interaction? No. Maybe not from the impression that I got. The experiment shows, remarkably, that a brief encounter with a beverage could see you either hired or fired. It's a powerful effect. People say, how can you get these effects with such rinky-dink little manipulations and moving people's behavior all over the place? And we also, we, we get a little defensive when we hear that, and I don't know, it just keeps working. We do these things and they work, and that's, you know, I'm sorry, <laughs> but they do. And now our job is to understand and try to explain to people why that is, why it is the human mind is constructed in a way that you can get these effects at all. I wonder if you can quantify this for us and give us a sense of how many hours of training will be spent working through these kind of scenarios. An average of about 60 hours on deadly force, that is the use of firearms, and an average of just over 60 hours on self-defense. Compare that to de-escalation conflict resolution training. The average there is only eight hours of training, and most of that is in a classroom. So when officers are faced with a tense situation, they'll fall back on those physical skills, he says, the ones they feel more comfortable with. When the world is coming to an end, when we are holding on for dear life thinking that our ship is going to capsize. It's about me here now. And when things are calm, it is about us everywhere forever. And that's how confidence changes our decisions. When we lack confidence, it's me here now. When confidence is high, it is us everywhere forever. And I think that's the only way we ever win these long-term battles is to give them some sort of emotional salience, some reason why they matter to us right now. Otherwise, it'll never work. The later part found a way to trick the now parts. And this has a name, this kind of approach. It's called a Ulysses contract. In the Iliad, there's a moment where Ulysses and his men have to sail past the island of the sirens. And Ulysses knows if they hear the siren song, they're dead. Sailors were so attracted to these melodies that they would steer towards them and crash their ships into the rocks and die. So on his way there, before the music started, he came up with a plan. He had his men lash him to the mast with ropes so that he couldn't move. And he had them fill their own ears with beeswax. And he said, no matter what I do, no matter how I'm gesticulating or shouting or acting like a crazy man, just keep rowing, just keep going. And so when they got to the sirens, Ulysses, he goes nuts. And he's screaming and yelling and telling the men, go towards the women, we don't want to pass this up. And of course, the men have beeswax in their ears. They're not swayed by the siren song. Because he had planned for this. The present tense Ulysses, by using his men and the rope, had literally bound the future Ulysses to the mast. Because he knew that guy would be weak. You're the answer, son. 